Welcome to the first episode of the first season of Pastor Life Podcast from Pinnacle Leadership Associates. I'm David Brown. And I'm Rhonda Blevins. And David, I got to tell you, I'm kind of excited about this new adventure, but uh, a little bit nervous too. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, I keep telling myself that it's just sharing a cup of coffee and conversation <laughs> with one of my favorite colleagues. And of course, the tens of thousands of other pastors who I know are just itching to listen in. Millions, millions. Well, David and I are so glad you're joining us to talk about ministry, church, family, culture, you know, the pastor life. In this pod, we'll talk about leading congregations in times of disruption, as well as how to confront Christian nationalism in our communities and in our pews. Hold on a minute. I've got pews at my church, but isn't your church pewless? <laughs> You're right, Rhonda. Even before COVID, we were pretty nomadic. <laughs> Maybe we could say how we deal with these important disruptions in our communities and in our congregations. There you go. That sounds better. All right. So with that, let's talk about the pastor life. So David, today we're talking about uh, leadership in times of disruption. So can churches and pastors find hope in the midst of disruption or is that a little bit of wishful thinking? Well, um, I'm going to start with a personal story about disruption. Um, I went to the eye doctor uh, just a, a couple weeks ago for my first checkup in a few years. I'd kind of let it slip, and it was quickly apparent that my nearsight vision is significantly worse than it was uh, the last time. I mean, really bad. And the, the truth is that I'd known this for a while. Uh, my arms had become a little too short for me to read the small print in a book. <laughs> Uh, or pretty much anything on my cell phone screen. And so I, I knew something was up. Um, fortunately, uh, you know, when my uh, optometrist gave me the prescription, you know, in addition to my normal prescription down at the bottom, there was additional um, plus 1.25. And there are these little things called reading glasses, which I am uh, now getting myself used to. Uh, I really have found so far that, you know, when I wear them, I can actually read emails on my iPhone and uh, that it does help with sitting in front of a screen for hours as we are wont to do these days. Uh, but after a, a certain amount of time, uh, this newfound perspective that the glasses provides, the help that it gives, you know, sometimes it does lead to a little headache or some eye strain. And, uh, you know, if I get up and walk down the hallway, my focus is a little off and I'm even maybe a little dizzy. Um, but the, the, the truth is that disruption, like that really bad eye test at my exam, you know, disruption leads us to take a leap and to try something new, maybe to explore a new perspective. And those new perspectives and the tools that come with them, they provide help, but they also have their own limitations. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So <clears throat> we've been living in a lot of disruption over this past year or two. And one of the things that I've discovered um, in the congregational setting is the adaptation, the innovation. Um, there have been, even though it's been difficult in a lot of ways for a lot of people, um, I've been really pleased with how my little church has adapted and we've started new programs and, and reached an entire new population. Um, yeah. So how do you apply your, your experience with your vision and, and that disruption? How do you apply that more broadly? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it definitely can apply to our congregations. I think one thing that we've seen is that, you know, over the last year, we've done some things as pastors and as churches that we never thought we would do. We never thought we'd have the need to do. And, you know, I think even the folks who are sitting in our pews or not sitting in our pews, <laughs> uh, you know, as the case might be, you know, I think even they are realizing that churches and maybe people are more adaptive than we give ourselves credit for. You know, some of the work that we're doing, you know, over this past year, you know, you know has been adaptive work. We've met the challenge in ways that maybe even surprised ourselves. Um, you know, I think we do get a new perspective um, through disruption. Uh, if you remember that movie, Dead Poet Society, it's, you know, kind of one of my all-time favorites. That dates us a little bit, David. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. So maybe there are a few old pastors on this uh, <laughs> podcast who will remember this movie. Uh, you know, Mr. Keating, he's a disruptive sort of teacher. He climbs up on the desk, he recites poetry, invites his students, right. you know, to see the world from a, a different perspective. Um, and, and in the movie, it's not all fun and games. You know, there's drama and pain and even death in the mix. Um, and, and to me, that's, that's the case with disruption and with adaptation. You know, when we see the world from a different perspective, you know, there are all sorts of things that kind of open up. Um, and, and some of those are, are good and beneficial and some of them are painful. Um, you know, we're kind of forced to confront reality in a new, a different way. Um, and, and maybe that's where the resources of our faith can come in. You know, to me, it's sort of the practical theology of, of resurrection. You know, the idea that, you know, resurrection can only come out of death. You know, when Jesus says, you know, unless that seed falls from the tree and dies, you know, nothing new can grow. Right. Yeah. So, you know, maybe mm -hmm. disruption, uh, whether we want it or not, forces us to give up some things in order to see new things or put some things to death in order to see new life um, burst forth. Yeah, I love that. And I love your your practical theology there, resurrection out of death. Um, you know, in in theory, this has been a, a season of such disruption, and we've we've seen some things that ha that we had to let go of. We we've had to let go of so much in our church life. We've had to let in my church, for instance. We've decided we we're meeting in person, but we're not singing, um, and that's been hard. We've we've had to let go of that, but we've found new ways to connect and new ways to express our faith um, through engaging online. My church is in Florida. We have a really large snowbird population. And before all of this, we were never, we, we never really thought about how to stay connected with them throughout the year. But this has um, opened up our online, our second campus, um, our online campus. And so we're remaining connected with our snowbirds throughout the year. So that's been an adaptation. That's been um, resurrection through death. Um, so, you know, how do you, how do you leap from theory to practice in your context? Yeah, I think we've felt some of the same things in the welcome table, you know, the, the community that uh, I helped to lead. And, you know, when we went from in-person gatherings, we were, we were, like I said, sort of nomadic. We were moving around using borrowed spaces, sometimes in people's homes. You know, we'd actually just made an arrangement, an agreement with the local Wesley Foundation, the Methodist Campus Ministry, and we were going to use their building, share space in that building. And that uh, arrangement went into place March the 1st last year. And so we got two weeks of worship in person um, gathering there at the Wesley Foundation before everybody kind of got sent home for COVID. 
And so as we've explored, you know, online and Zoom, and we still meet live on Sunday mornings, but via Zoom. And um, it's been great because family members, extended family from out of town have joined in and, and been a part of, you know, our gatherings. And, and there have been people who have quarantined themselves, you know, at a, a place up in the mountains or when they've been out of town for other reasons, have been able to join in and continue to participate. And so, you know, I think like what you said, there have been certain ways in which we've just been forced to adapt and we didn't really know what the next way or the next step was going to be. We just had to sort of week by week live into the moment. I, I think the interesting thing is going to be as we move forward from here. You know, we've been at this in COVID times now for almost a year. Right. And Can you believe that? That's <laughs> crazy, isn't it? Right. And you know, I, th I think with vaccines and, you know, other things, you know, a lot of us are, are feeling a hopefulness um, that I don't know that we could say that we're going to get back to quote unquote normal, but that some new routine is going to emerge. I um, saw what you did there. You were doing your best not to say new normal. I caught you. Yeah, you <laughs> caught me. You caught me. So, you know, the, the thing I wonder is that if what we've experienced over the past year might actually be the norm for our emerging world. Uh, you know, folks who study these things use the term VUCA, V-U-C-A. I don't know if you've heard that acronym. I Ron, think you shared that with me. I think you taught me that phrase. Yeah. So, you know, VUCA, the, it's an acronym that, you know, sort of shows us that the world we live in is increasingly volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. So volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. That feels about right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've experienced this firsthand, right? It's hard to argue with. And the, the thought is that maybe this is the sort of world that we now live in. You know, whether it's virus, whether it's political upheaval, you know, whether it's, you know, social action and protest, you know, maybe this is the the world that exists now and, and will be in the foreseeable future. Um, and, and I think if that's the case, then as churches and pastors, you know, we probably ought to catch our breath for a minute. <laughs> And we probably ought to look back over this last year and and maybe take a minute just to acknowledge that there is remarkable adaptive work that many churches and pastors have done over the last year. Yep. Yep. We've seen it through our work at Pinnacle. We've seen lots of it, haven't we? We have. Yeah, absolutely. I, sometimes I hear about what other churches are doing. I'm thinking, oh, I'm no good. They're doing so awesome. But there's a lot of good work going on right now. Well, and I think we've figured out some ways in the COVID environment to, you know, share some of those emerging church practices and to kind of reflect together and, you know, learn from one another. And I think that's great. So, you know, one of the questions for us as church leaders now, and, and we can ask this sort of in our own places of worship, you know, our own communities, but I think we can ask it about the ways that clergy band together and kind of feed off of one another. Yes. You know, but can we create, can we actually create space and time for a maybe sort of a action reflection action model of learning in the midst of disruption? So, you know, if disruption is something we just have to deal with in life and, you know, maybe more as a way of life going forward, can we embrace this kind of VUCA 
environment, this type of moment as a gift, you know, where we can actually capture and integrate our growth and turn it into, say, an adaptive capacity, you know, an ability to take on whatever becomes the next challenge on our horizon. Yeah, I think I think that's great. I hope the answer is yes. I'd like yeah. to think it's yes. <laughs> I believe it is. I believe it is. I, I hope so, too. And, you know, circling all the way back around, you know, can there be hope in the midst of disruption? Well, I, I mean, I think yes. I mean, I think that's yeah. what our Christian faith would say. And maybe that's even a little bit of what our experience over the last 12 months might say. You know, now can we hold on to that and kind of drive it into the future? And I think that's the big question for us when it comes to leading in the midst of disruption. Yeah, thanks for that. You give me hope. You um, you give me a little energy for this work um, when sometimes <laughs> it can be tiring. You know, it's it's been an exhausting sort of year. So thank you for that. It has. Well, you know, Rhonda, let's um, let's sort of name the elephant in the Zoom room. Hmm. You know, when we're living in the midst of, of disruption, but we're living in some very particular disruptions in our world and, and in our country. And the past 12 months have brought us the COVID-19 pandemic, the deaths of George Floyd and other black and brown people at the hands of police and right in our plain sight. Um, right. And also an, an extremely turbulent political process. So in the, the wake of the Capitol insurrection on January 6th, it, it really was your article um, for the Pinnacle blog that was one of the most helpful perspectives that I read. Uh, and I just wondered, oh, you know, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I shared it around with folks and really just got a lot of, you know, you talk about getting hope from one another. And I, I got a little bit of hope from that. And um, I wonder if you wanted to just talk a little more about that article, you know, how it came to be, um, and, and then just your thinking on the work that the church has to do in an age of Christian nationalism. Yeah, sure. Well, I want to start by saying that I don't consider myself an expert in, in Christian nationalism by any stretch of the imagination. I, I've, I've written and reflected just from my perspective as a local church pastor, um, thinking about how to confront Christian nationalism in my church, in my community. Um, and, and here's the challenge for me, um, and probably for a lot of other pastors, um, how to confront Christian nationalism in a way that doesn't alienate people that I love and that I'm charged to care for and to pastor, uh, people who have maybe unwittingly been caught up in the growing problem of Christian nationalism. Um, and, and that, you know, and, and by way of that, it affects us at the local church level. Um, but before I get too much further, it's probably helpful to define Christian nationalism so that we're all on the same page. Yeah, and, that's great. Um, I think yeah. that's really helpful. I like the definition in the book, Taking America Back for God. Um, the subtitle is Christian Nationalism in the United States. It's by Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry, and they're both sociology professors. And they define Christian nationalism as a cultural framework that idealizes and advocates a fusion of Christianity with American civic life. And they say it includes our myths and our traditions, our symbols, our shared stories, 
our value systems. And this fusion of, of Christianity with our civic life, um, it, they say that it goes beyond religion and it's all wrapped up with nativism, with white supremacy, with patriarchy, which you know I love, not <laughs> um, with heteronormativity. And then there's also this idea of this divine sanction, this desire for authoritarian control. Um, guns and militarism is big with the Christian nationalism crowd. And so that's how Whitehead and Perry describe it. Um, yeah. uh, now, do you want to know how I describe it? <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, I feel like this is the, the, this is a movement that I think we've gotten glimpses of in the past. And I think I've been aware of, you know, particularly just knowing that on the fringes, there was sort of this organized Christian nationalist movement, but it seems like it's really kind of come into the center of our conversation and obviously the center of our TV screens recently. Yeah. So, yeah I mean, how would you put it? you know, just in, in maybe the layman terms for us. <laughs> yeah, well, it's so in our face, it's hard to miss these days. So um, here's kind of how I think about it. Christian nationalism is a heresy within the contemporary church in America. Hmm. Um, and it has replaced a confession of faith with a battle cry. So we've, we've gone from Jesus is Lord to God and country. Hmm. Um, and most most of our listeners probably saw some of the footage from the riots on Capitol Hill on January 6th. And, and of course, riots is probably not the best word. The insurgency um, may be the better word. Um, I probably watched too much of that footage, but I was particularly paying attention to the symbols, the Christian symbols that were on full display. Some of the ones that I saw, um, Jesus 2020 was one of them. Yeah, I saw the, that one. Too. Yeah, the big wooden, did you see the guy with the big wooden cross? Um, yeah, yeah. There was a, a like a maybe like a makeshift stage with a sound system and a lady was singing praise songs. Um, that was really interesting. I think I'm glad I missed that. <laughs> you probably, not, yeah, yeah. You, yeah. That's not something that you uh, want to go back and have to in, <laughs> invest yourself in. Um, let's see. There was someone waved a Christian flag in one of the chambers. I can't remember if it was the Senate or the House. Um, guy carrying the big Bible. Did you see that? And it wasn't like a Bible that normal people would read. Like it's a Bible that akin to the one that sits on the altar at my church, like a big Bible. Mm. Uh, so obviously, you know, as a prop. Um, and then the guy with the horns that calls himself the shaman. Um, did you right. see his prayer? No, no, I didn't. I saw, obviously saw him. You couldn't miss him, but I oh, didn't no. hear his prayer. Oh yeah, I oh yeah. Why did I watch all this? But he said this very Christiany prayer with a lot of justs, you know. Oh, just do this and just do that, you know, that kind of prayer. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so these all these symbols of the Christian faith, it just kind of made me sick how they were co-opted um, from authentic forms of the faith and used as kind of like cudgels in this violent anti-democratic assault on the on the legislative branch of her government. Yeah, sure. I mean, it was really hard to watch. I mean, yeah. it was hard to watch just in and of itself, you know, from a American citizen point of view, you know, just seeing the Capitol being sort of ransacked, you know. Yeah. Um, but you're right, even harder to sort of watch it as a, a, a Christian, um, uh -huh. as a Christian leader, you know, at least a, a local church pastor, you know, and, and especially being somebody who some of the churches that I've served in the past, you know, uh, 
the American flag and the Christian flag right. were a part of the, you know, the furniture in our sanctuaries. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that struggle of, of how to be a pastor and a Christian um, in the midst of uh, the, the country that we live in. And, um, you know, it was hard to watch, but it was it was really even harder knowing what to preach the next Ooh, Sunday. Right. Oh, I, I don't I don't think I slept a lot that Saturday night. And, you know, there's a lot of stress going into that one. How did you address it on the following Sunday? Absolutely. I mean, we tried to just take it head on. And, yeah. you know, um, I think one of the positive things about this last year has been that there have been multiple opportunities you know, to, to engage in some some tough conversations with our congregations. And I think, you know, I know from knowing you that you've been proactive in some of those conversations, and I've tried to be proactive about some of those conversations. And it, it can be hard to do in purple communities and purple churches. But, you know, what I do think, you mean by that? Well, I mean, that, purple, the purple. Yeah, sure, sure. Like not red, not blue. Yeah. Um, you know, when I look out at the Zoom screens on Sunday mornings these days, you know, I know that there are folks who really fall o- all over the map politically, theologically, you know, but we have some common commitments together as the welcome table. And so negotiating what that means, especially when you feel a strong sense to need to address something that so clearly is is unjust. And right. um, maybe we got a little bit of practice with that uh, over the last year, you know, dealing with some of the um, racial inequality issues mm-hmm. that were just brought to the forefront. And I know we haven't done those perfectly, you know, in terms of my own congregation, but we've really made efforts to be honest and be engaged and be having you know, meaningful conversations about difficult topics. So, you know, maybe we're getting a little bit of practice at this, uh, especially if it uh, becomes something that is, you know, incredibly important moving forward, you know, with our congregations. Yeah, I love your positive spin on that. Look, hey, we get to have practice and tackling hard topics. That's awesome. Yeah, um, when, uh, you know, <laughs> when, when people pray for patience and God gives them opportunities <laughs> to develop it, right? Right, so, right. You know, we we prayed that God would lead us to be prophetic preachers and maybe God's given us opportunities <laughs> to do that. That's a great way to look at it. So how well, about that, you? Uh, how did you address January well, that, Yeah, well, that's, well, first of all, I prayed a lot. Um, and then I usually I usually preach without notes, but that particular Sunday I decided I needed to stick with the script because um, I wanted to choose my words carefully, um, which is unusual for my congregation. They were like, "Oh, something's up. What's happening?" <laughs> right. um, and it's because I just, like you said, I wanted to tackle it head on. Um, and so I think the first thing I wanted to do is just name my experience, my own human normal experience of the sorrow that I felt watching all of that go down. Um, and how particularly sad I was to see all of our Christian symbols being co-opted um, for that effort. Um, and then I thought, well, what can we do together? What's our, what are we, what's our response to all this? And so I thought of three things. You know, I had a, uh, a mentor. Uh, he said, you always give them something to do, preacher. So I always try to give my people something to do. And so the three things that I encouraged them to do, and the, the first thing was this that we must commit ourselves to the truth. 
um, and that we shouldn't allow conspiracy theories to take up any space in our brains, to not entertain ideas or accusations without empirical evidence. I reminded, I keep reminding them, it seems like over this past couple of years, to check sources, uh, to keep those fact-checking websites readily available. Um, of course, some people don't rely on those. They say they're not accurate, and that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> right. Yeah. What is truth these days? Yeah. Oh, we, we could hope do a little podcast on that. <laughs> um, the second thing I told them to do is that we must commit ourselves to humility, um, that this us versus them mentality is steeped in arrogance and hubris. And um, I once heard Walter Brueggemann say, dare to think you're wrong. And so that, I think that's been some of the best advice I've ever been given. Um, if we as a people could embrace humility as a starting point, I think we'd be in a lot better shape in our churches and in our country. And then finally, I told them that we must commit ourselves to nonviolence. I reminded them that Jesus was committed to nonviolence. And uh, you remember when he rebuked Peter for Peter uh, cutting off Malchus's ear at, at Jesus' arrest? Um, yeah. And so Jesus was committed to nonviolence, and so that we need to be uh, as well. Um, but, you know, this Christian nationalism that was on full display at the Capitol that day, it, it you know, left five, six, what, I don't know what the death count is now, seven or eight maybe by now. Right. Um, and there were suicides that followed the death count in its wake. Uh, this is not a, an anti-violent movement. It's a violent movement. Um, so, I, you know, I, I told them that this isn't by any means all that we're going to be called to do, but it's a starting point, a unifying starting block, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I think when I read the article, which, as I understand it, was sort of a, a repurposing of your sermon. And, and um, when I read it, truth, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, which is great. Um, and to be able to share that sermon with the whole swath of other people besides just the ones uh, in your congregation, I think is, I'm grateful for that. It was a gift. And, uh, you know, to me, the blend of, you know, kind of starting with yourself and the feelings you were feeling, um, but then kind of confronting things head on. And then I, I really, I'm glad you mentioned the um, rebuke of Jesus rebuking Peter, uh, and I think that grounded it in a sense of the biblical narrative, you know, the story of, of Jesus, and, you know, I think, I think that blend is super important, you know, when we talk about preaching to the variety of people who are, you know, hearing our sermons, you know, can we ground it in something personal? Can we confront issues head on and can we, you know, make a tie to something true in the biblical story? Um, so, I, I mean, you did all the right thing. So <laughs> how, did, how did people receive that message? Did you get much feedback? You know, mostly I, I expected some negative feedback. You know, occasionally you'll push the buttons and whatnot. But, um, you know, I didn't get a lot of negative feedback. Uh, mostly Republicans, Democrats, um, both were affirming. Now, there are a couple of people that have really fallen in the conspiracy theory rabbit hole who didn't like much of what I had to say. But otherwise, it was it was mostly positive feedback, which I was kind of surprised about. It was seemed to be unifying that we found the right starting blocks, that we can all agree on this, and where do we go from here? So, um, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I um, I think all of this is really, you know, it's going to be interesting is not even the right word, but uh, to, to see how things unfold. And 
I heard this was a, a, a podcast I was listening to it had nothing to do with faith. Um, but the folks who were talking on this other podcast, they were talking about the importance of thinking about a different axis, axis or continuum other than the left and the right. Oh. And maybe thinking about a continuum that is more of a vertical continuum between truth and lies. Oh, and just yeah. trying to figure out, you know, are we going to be able as a society or as a community um, or as a congregation, are we going to be able to sort of get on a common page when it comes to truth versus lies? And that seems to be a huge challenge um, in the larger culture. And I wonder if congregations are going to be able to, you know, lead the way in reminding one another about truth, or are we going to sort of follow along with the erosion that seems to be happening, you know, in our culture? Yeah, I love that. I love that. And um, the lectionary group that you and I are a part of, we talked about Phyllis Tickle's book that every time there's a great upheaval in our church um, and in the world, the question is, where now is our authority? Where, Where's the, you know, where do we look to for truth? And I think we're in the middle of that, experiencing that, you know, in a palpable way. Yeah, absolutely. So where do you go next, you know, with your congregation in terms of, you know, confronting Christian nationalism or, or telling some other story? Yeah, so uh, I've got a couple of uh, retired educators who took that sermon and took it to the next step. So this is, um, I get to benefit from from their wisdom. Um, and what they want to do is explore some models, and there's some models out there, um, explore some models for bringing a small group of people together um, that would be on the continuum right to left or red to blue or whatever to bring them together in ways that can, they can listen to one another um, that there would be some serious ground rules in place um, and 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 it, and pull that together in a way that would be affirming and a learning experience for them it's not didactic it's experiential um, so that's kind of be our next step. We're studying those models and we'll, we'll put something in place, hopefully by fall of 2021. Um, uh, yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So keep me posted on that, right? Yeah, of course. Of course. Well, so to, to sort of pull some things together, um, you know, do you have any tips or tricks? I don't know if that uh, is, <laughs> is, you know, uh, even possible for talking about Christian nationalism <laughs> in, in other churches or in other parts of the church, you know, the oh, yeah. sermon or other ways. Well, um, yeah, I don't know if I have any anything um, to offer, but I I'll give you one of my sermon illustrations that I used at one point because it yeah. was memorable. I like to keep things memorable. Um, so you mentioned being at a church that had both the Christian flag and the and and the United States flag on your chancel. Well, my church is like that. We have both flags. And so to begin a sermon, well, let me let me back up and say that I used to be really chicken and just take the Sunday around July Fourth off. I would just go to the mountains or go somewhere so I didn't have to That's deal with. That's a great idea. <laughs> so I didn't I have to deal with down. the God and country stuff. Um, but I've I've gotten my courage up over the past few years and decided no, I'm going to use that Sunday to talk about issues of Christian nationalism and religious freedom and, and really that use that Sunday to tackle those things head on. And so one Sunday I uh, began my sermon in silence and just going and pulling the Christian flag uh, front and center and pulling the other flag, the American flag front and center, and I placed them side by side on the chancel and I stood between them and I think I titled the sermon um, uh, Stuck in the Middle with You. 
nice. and talked about how um, sometimes uh, there's a symbiotic relationship between those two entities, between our Christian faith and be being American citizen. But sometimes there's not a symbiotic relationship. And sometimes we have to take a stand as people of faith against practices that are unjust or antithetical to the gospel. And so I, you know, I think that was helpful, that very visual tool. We've got two flags and which one is gonna, you know, have your primary allegiance. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I served in several churches where the, uh, the the flags were, you know, constant symbols in the sanctuary. Uh, in fact, the first church that I took a call at after seminary on my first Sunday there, it was the Sunday that was right around July the fourth week, and one of the other associates um, stood up and got into the pulpit and spontaneously, you know, it wasn't in the order of worship. Spontaneously, he instructed everyone to stand up and pledge allegiance to the flag. Oh wow. <laughs> So my very first experience in this first call out of seminary was sitting there and hearing this other pastor, you know, call everybody to pledge allegiance to the flag. And it, it just kind of shook me a little bit, you know, for my first experience with that. For good reason. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, and so then there was another church that I served in and the uh, the flags were not, you know, in the past, they had both been fixtures on the chancel, but at some point they uh, were sort of disappeared, I would say. <laughs> And uh, only a few people knew where they had been disappeared to. And so they would show back up for certain Sundays. And I think this kind of points to what you're talking about, you know, the, the symbiotic relationship. There were certain Sundays that, you know, if they didn't reappear, there would be a backlash, you know, Memorial Day, right. uh, the one near July the 4th. So, you know, I, I think this is not certainly a new issue that we're facing as pastors and Christians and leaders, um, but it certainly is maybe an amplified one recently. So, you know, thanks so much, Rhonda, for uh, just giving us some insight and, you know, starting that conversation. I feel like it's one that, that many of us who are standing in front of congregations and preaching, uh, you know, this coming Sunday and the Sunday after that, and, uh, you know, over these next few months are going to need to take heed of. So thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Well, I think, David, I think we have completed our first podcast together. Hey, that's pretty good. <laughs> Feels good. Feels good to have one behind us, right? Yeah, yeah. So this wraps it up for this episode of Pastor Life from Pinnacle Leadership Associates. Be sure and check out our website at pinlead.com. That's P-I-N-N-L-E-A-D.com for clergy coaching, church consulting, as well as resources for leading adaptive change in your congregation. You'll also want to sign up for our weekly e-news with relevant articles and other resources from our team, as well as information about upcoming webinars and coaching cohorts. Hey, David, you want to hear something funny? Uh, sure, of course. <laughs> so I asked my my husband, I said, honey, help me think of a pithy way to close our Pastor Life podcast. And he said, well, I don't know what pithy means, so that's going to be hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, did you find a pithy way to close out our first podcast? Uh, not really, but I'll try this one out for you. How's this? <clears throat> pithy, profound. It's Pastor Life podcast. Hmm. <laughs> I'm not sure. That's no? a, you know, maybe that's a little too uh, self-aggrandizing. Oh, okay. All right. Do you have something better? Um, how about pastor life better than pastor death? 
<laughs> no, no, that's terrible. That's really bad. Uh, well, you've listened to Pastor Life. Now on to Pastor Afterlife. Oh, oh, that's that. I think uh, that's worse. I think. All right, back to oh, the drawing board. I guess. I think we're really bad at this. <laughs> <laughs>